Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 to 17. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. All right, you guys can have a seat. Um, Harold, this slides a few down, the one that says shift, but I, I want to start a new series that we're calling Shift. Um, these five different shifts that, they're not necessarily shifts, but there can be like renovations of the church or um, ways of doing things. This kind of came about as Suzanne and Christine and I were talking about kind of the idea of maybe this concept of new wine and how Jesus said you can't put new wine into old wineskins. And just the idea of, like, what is the new wine of the church? Like, what are the ways of doing church that used to be done that we just won't go back to, and how do we live now? And um, I found these five statements from a uh, collective that I follow in, in, um, in Canada called the Jesus Collective. They're also in the United States, but it's a group of churches that gather together as an, an association or partnership. And I thought these were really good just to kind of... Uh, speak to that truth. Like, what is the new wine? What is the way of doing church that we do church now that is different, that we can't we just go back to these old wineskins, these old ways of doing things. We can't put new, fresh wine that God has given the church and put them into the old forms. We have to think differently. So I'm going to read them to you, and today we're going to hit on the first one. Um, so the first one's a bigger gospel. Um, to be saved includes belonging to a community under Jesus called to live the life of the future now. Um, the second is a different way of reading Scripture. So God always looks like Jesus, and all Scripture is properly read through him. Um, three is a new relationship with power. Evil is overcome through the power of suffering love. Four is a fresh empowerment of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers us to partner with God's work of re- reconciling all things. And five is a new approach to disagreement. Uh, the church is defined by our shared center, not by line, the lines we draw. Um, so I kind of want to go through those uh, five each week. Today I'm going to start off with a bigger gospel. Is that cool? Um, so um, we'll dive in. I'm going to start in with uh, Dorothy Day. Dorothy Day uh, was a, a later convert. She came to know Christ in her early 30s. Um, she was an uh, activist and an author. Um, she lived, she was a very uh, serious woman. She she took seriously the call to follow Jesus. She was a minimalist. Um, when she died, she died with like a bed, a teapot, and like a few things. She was um, known for saying a lot of radical things. <laughs> she, she even talks in her biography about having, she's like, I, I, uh, when, I'm, when I'm sitting still and just thinking, I look like I'm angry. So she maybe was the first one to coined the resting bee face that we often talk about. <laughs> Anybody else know that, have that face? Okay, so Dorothy Day was very serious. She, she was known, my favorite quote for her is, you love God as much as the person you love the least. She's, she kind of hits you with a punch. She said this, we want with all our hearts to love and to be loved, and not just in the family, but to look upon all as our mothers, sisters, brothers, and children. It is when we love the most intensely and most humanely, uh, most humanly, that we, have, we can recognize how tepid is our love for others. 
The keenness and intensity of love brings with it suffering and, of course, but joy too, because it is a foretaste of heaven. So she believed that our call as a Christian is to live the future heaven into reality now. It's to be this foretaste of heaven. Um, so uh, a couple of ways I like to think about the foretaste of heaven is, um, you know, as a parent with three kids, um, often, you know, uh, years ago when the kids were young, we've actually been going through clothes right now and going through all the old clothes that we've kept and they need to get rid of. And um, I remember all those years of having little ones that you would, you know, you would buy clothes, you'd have a three-year-old or a two-year-old and you'd go and you'd buy You'd go to the store and you see a good deal, so you get age four, five, six, right? Or you go to the thrift store and you get these things, right? There, there are these outfits that are already but not yet, right? They're already in your possession, but they're not yet ready, right? Um, other thing I think of is, is when you go to the movies and you see a preview, um, often, you know, I love it when you're with your kids in a movie and they lean over and they're like, I can't wait to see that. Um, they see that movie. And so... The, the church is kind of like that. We are an already but not yet. We are a preview of what's to come. We are the preview trailer of the kingdom. That is what the church is. Um, and Dorothy Day is kind of hitting on this preview community. Um, Hauerwas says this. He says, uh, he says, I have come to think that the challenge confronting Christians is not that we do not believe what we say, Though that can be a problem, but that we say we believe what we believe doesn't make sense to make any difference for either the church or the world. Let me say that again. I've come to think that the challenge that's confronting us right now is not that we do not believe what we say. It's not doctrine. It's not belief. It's that we say we believe doesn't seem to really make any difference for either us or the world. So we're talking about the gospel today. Like, how does that actually make a difference for us in the world? And you think about the church. Who is it good for? Who is it a benefit to? Which people? Which people does it, does it help? Does the church really make a difference? And whose lives is it making a difference in? Many Christians find themselves rethinking their faith altogether. And so um, there's a woman named Phyllis Tickle. It's an amazing name. If your name's Phyllis Tickle, you probably have something intriguing to say. And she uh, was very famous for writing a lot. She was an academic. She was an author. She would be quoted a lot by, like, NPR and all kinds of news stations. But she was a, an Episcopalian author and teacher and professor. Um, she wrote that this is kind of articulates what might be contributing to this. She says, about every 500 years, the empowered structures of institutional Christianity, whatever that they may be at the time, become an intolerable carapace carapace is kind of like just hard shell, a protective shell, that must be shattered in order that renewal and new growth may occur. So she says every 500 years, there's like this, these structures, she says it another way, this way, I like this way a little bit better. Every 500 years, the church cleans out its attic and has a giant rummage cell of ideas. So she's saying like, what are the, so what are our, what are our ideas that the church needs to just put out to a rummage cell that are just like, we're, these are done. These are like they're no longer they're a dollar each. <laughs> they're no longer really that helpful. And um, so, what what are the things that need to be shattered in how we do church, right? Like in how you think about church, how you think about the gospel, how do you think about the way we are to live as Christians? Um, so, what are the kind of the renovations? That's what these statements are. 
um, this shift? What's the shift? What are the old wineskins that need to be thrown away? It's a different way of reading scripture, a new relationship with power, fresh and power in the spirit, a new way to disagree. And so, um, so talking about a bigger gospel, the phrase a bigger gospel, uh, before we get to that slide, um, in your own words, maybe just take a moment and think about this answer. What is the gospel? It's probably not something you've been thinking about this week. Um, how are you to define what is the gospel? Um, Take a moment just to kind of think, what is the gospel? You had to explain this to somebody and explain what it is. Um, the impe- the, uh, Dallas Willard would say that the impediments to becoming a follower of Jesus, one of the major impediments, is that we have a thin gospel, a malnourished view of the gospel. And like subtle ways that you have either been raised in with this or believe in this can really impact a lot about your spirituality. So I want to give you two definitions of the gospel. I want you to see the differences and subtle differences and see, um, show you, explain this. So gospel definition number one, um, this is kind of like the gospel that I would say I grew up with, um, that, that I was taught as a child. Uh, God saves you from the punishment of your sin. That punishment comes from God, and God in Christ enters the human story to take that punishment as your substitute. And when you trust God as your substitute, you will be saved from hell. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Um, And now I want to read a second story, a gospel. This actually comes from um, a, 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 a partnership questionnaire answer of what is the gospel um, from years ago from someone who wrote very well, but also very accessible. That's why I want to read it, because it's not some theologian's definition. This person writes this. Listen to this. This question scares me. I'm afraid I might be wrong or I'll miss something key, even after years of following Jesus. So here's a simple crack at it. The gospel seems like being given access to a good God who sees us, knows us, loves us, and promises to be with us until he restores this hurting world to peace and wholeness through this Jesus guy who became incarnate living as one of us. There's nothing we can do to earn this connection with an almighty God. Humans seem bound to messing things up and causing hurt. Some people call this sin, but whatever you want to call it, hurt separates people from people and people from God. And somehow in Jesus, in his perfect, almighty ways, he pays for us screw-ups and gives himself away to make, us, make all things new. It's important to say this is a free gift and not obliged to receive. Please gently tell me what I'm missing and what needs rounding out. Love that. So the first gospel is... There's this justice that needs to be satisfied, right? Justice wins. God's going to make sure things are just. And justice will win in the day because God will make things just. God is the one who's wronged. We've wronged God, and therefore God is the one who pays for our wrong towards God. Um, but the second gospel, it's more of like this sense of like, just God's love never fails. It just never gives up on us. It, love is what wins. It's not justice that wins. In this first story, salvation is kind of this freedom from guilt, kind of like this upbringing Raul was talking about. This salvation in the second gospel is like healing and liberation. It might be forgiveness or social reparations or creative future. It's a total different posture. 
And the first one, we are saved from God. (laughs) The enemy is God. God is the one who is going to punish you, and yet God decides, you know what, I'll save you from myself, and Jesus will die. The second one is we're saved from the enemy of this world, which is sin and Satan and death and the human condition. Um, And so is your, your gospel big enough is it, or is it small? Is it very limited in how it's defined? Or is it, is it even big enough to include other people's view of the gospel? Something I think about. I love that question. I don't know, at the end, I don't know how to talk about this. I might be wrong. A sense of humility in even talking about the gospel. And I don't know about you, but like that question, I'm even a pastor, and it's hard sometimes to articulate the gospel. And um, so I want to encourage us that we need the gospel to get bigger. And it's okay we fumble or fabricate a small gospel at times. That makes sense. But um, I want to talk about the rest of my message. Three ways to tell your gospel is too small. Three ways your gospel is too small. That sounds a little clickbait magazine-ish, I know, but um, hang in there with me. Uh, <laughs> so uh, three ways. The first one is disembodied, uh, disembodied gospel. A disembodied gospel. A disembodied gospel is words only. It's like that definition mindset of a gospel. Like, okay, the gospel is words and a definition that explain a transactional rea- a transaction between us and God and how um, a transfer of information, right? If you believe this information, you have the gospel. You, you, you know it. The goal in that kind of disembodied view is to kind of get us from here and to get us to up there, Right? And how do you know for sure that you're going to that place? Well, it involves saying in my upbringing a certain prayer. If you prayed the certain prayer, it's magical. It's a magical incantation that now you are accepted before God because you said that prayer. Does it sound familiar to anybody else? (laughs) And you said that prayer, you're good. You're good for life. You're set. You believe the right things. But unfortunately, this view, it doesn't have any apprenticeship to Jesus. It doesn't have anything to do with following Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, walking in the dust of your rabbi. And uh, 1 Corinthians 4.20 says this. It says, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. In power, not in talk. We've got plenty of words. We need more flesh. We need more embodiment. We need more incarnation. I love the, the word incarnation is a good theological word we should probably dust off from time to time out of the Bible. Um, We had chili last night. You could say we had chili con carne, which is chili with meat, right? Chili in the flesh. (laughs) God is is in the flesh. He's con carne. Jesus became something you can touch and feel, right? Um, So the opposite of a disembodied gospel is is an apprenticeship to Jesus, following Jesus. You're, You're actually like following him, following this person, have this living uh, non-static relationship with Jesus. Um, so God's way, I love the way uh, the message translates 1 Corinthians 4.20. It says this, God's way is not mere talk, it's an empowered life. It's empowered life. Christ- Ignatius of Antioch said this in the 4th century, Christianity is not a matter of persuading people of particular ideas, but of inviting them to share in the greatness of Christ. So uh, it's very important at Missio Day that we, you probably feel this in our ethos, but we're not, we're not, when you have this view of the gospel as these words, 
you create a culture of a church culture of we have a boundary around who we are, and that boundary is determined by that set words of the gospel. And if someone doesn't have that exact same set of words or understanding of the gospel, they're kind of either out or they're like in, but not really. Um, and then um, that that's kind of, the, we'll get into that later, but that's kind of this boundary set community that says, and then what happens is the communication of God's word is all about protecting those words. So um, an example of this is, you know, what when Jesus died on the cross, that there's a lot of different ways to explain that. A lot of different ways church history is used to explain that. But one that people latch on to is the substitutionary that Jesus took our place, which is true. But people, they'll, they'll, maybe that's their definition of the gospel. So therefore, any other way of explaining it is like, no, it must be explained this way. So that's what I'm getting at in terms of our gospel must be bigger. It must be embodied. The, the second thing is oversimplification. Oversimplification. Um, again, that kind of say this prayer after me mindset. Um, you've probably been familiar with the oversimplification of the gospel, something like this. You're a sinner. God loves you. Jesus died for your sins. Believe in him, and you'll go to him when you die. All right, this is like kind of like simplified version. Jesus died to save us from God, like we talked about. Um, the problem, though, is that this is not the gospel Jesus preached. Jesus didn't talk like this. He said, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. Whenever he talked about grace, someone asked him about these kind of realities. He would say, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a parable, and we'll see if you get it. Um, So it's not a transaction, but just transformation. And it's not just individual souls, but societies, the entire earth and communities. And so that's the third thing is individualistic. Um, Individualistic. So this is another example that your, your gospel may be too small. Um, during the, the pandemic, I, I had this practice of saying um, the Lord's Prayer when I wash my hands. I noticed that that was like the exact timing that the doctors told you to, to wash your hands. And um, I remember praying it, and I had this tendency to always want to change the prayer to, to me language. Like if you read it, it's give us your, our, our daily bread, For, free us from temptation, deliver us from evil. But I would want to pray, give me my daily bread. Forgive me of my trespasses. I wanted to individualize it. But that prayer is a communal, communal prayer. It is, it is how do, how, like us as a whole, not just individually. And what does that look like to, to the whole point of salvation is you are saved into a community. This is, this is the kind of the, the linchpin of the message today. Because um, we often think, whoa, this is what I'm saved from, but what are you saved to? You're saved to a community. Salvation is communal. You are saved to a community that is to be the preview of heaven. That's what salvation is, the whole point, is to draw out of ourselves, and especially in this day and age when we're drawn out of this narcissistic self and become deeply communal, instead of being steeped in radical individualism. Um, 1 Corinthians 3 says this, the, the passage John read, Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Now, when I was a, a child or a youth, I remember hearing this passage taught that you better take care of your body, because God's body, you are God's temple. Um, you, you also better be careful of having sex with someone because God's spirit is in you and you're doing something weird 
Because the, God's spirit lives in you. That's, you're the temple. Keep your temple pure. Keep your temple... Now, there's other passages that do talk about that, but that's not at all what this passage is saying. This passage is, uh, the Southerners finally got something right. Y'all, y'all are God's temple. Um, you together are that temple. It's you plural in the Greek. So it's saying that we collectively are where God's spirit dwells. We are where God's spirit dwells. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. God's temple is sacred. And what is a temple? A temple is a place of worship. A temple is a place of sacrifice. It's a place where we confess and forgive. It's in community we get to live out the gospel. So you can, it is very challenging to live out this gospel outside of that. And this is the magnificence of the church, a group of people who might be together that wouldn't ever be together otherwise. Like, where else will you have the rich and the poor, Democrat, Republican, different ethnicities all come together and maintain this reconciled community, a community where we're continually being saved in and known and be known and practice reconciliation. There's no other way around it. Um, So belonging to community is a lot of work, but it is the work that we are created in. Bless you. And we are created in the image of God, right? So what is that image? The image of God is not is the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this triune God, right? Um, the first century writers, uh, Gregory and Basil, wrote this phrase about God when trying to describe God, and they called it the, the, the perichorosis, the circle dance, God is the circle dance. Now, if I were to say that to you today and just out of the blue, you'd be like, that guy's a heretic. These guys are writing in the third century AD, calling God the circle dance. If I was like, hey, everybody, we worship God the circle dance, you'd be like, Luffy, a little loose out there, guy. But that's, that's, that's who God is. It's the circle dance. It's the circle dance of a commune God, and we are to image God. So how do you image God by yourself? If God is the circle dance, how do you image God in alone? You can't. You image God with others. This an eternal dance of inner Trinitarian communal love. So when God thinks of humanity, God thinks of this community that, that images him. What does it look like to be a community that images God? And we were created for this stuff. <laughs> we... We, we, we talked about it last week that the United, United Kingdom hired a, a loneliness minister for their political staff. Um, and it's going to take risk and vulnerability and misunderstandings and fumbles. I want to show you this one more picture um, in Revelation, 20, uh, Revelation 19, if this is up there. Um, this, this is a passage about the end and a metaphor for us as the church. It says, when I heard... What sounded like a great multitude, like the roaring, rushing of water, like the pearls of thunder, shouting hallelujah. For our Lord, our Lord, Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. And it's talking about us as the bride communally getting ready for this consummation of meeting God. It's using the metaphor of a betrothment back then in which the, the, the groom would go and get the land and the house ready and prepare a place for the bride. The bride would get herself ready and they would come and, and consummate their marriage. Um, but I love this one last line that I usually don't pay attention to. It's in parentheses. It says, the fine linens stand for the righteous acts of God's holy people. 
So this metaphor of like this, this what, what is this kind of like, how do we get ourselves ready for the preview community now? It's our character that God's building as his holy people. It's, it's how do we love one another when we're different from one another? How do we actually, we're all going to be worshiping together communally forever one day next to people that we disagree with that are in God's family, right? That are totally unique from us, totally different from us, speak different languages, look different from us, have values that are different from us. We're going to be worshiping with him forever. So God's like, you might want to get used to that now and have righteous acts of holiness together, treating each other humane. Um, but we live in such a polarized world, such a polarized world. We, we, so back to the divine dance. That's the picture of God. Um, Richard War talks about, however, the Latins kind of talked about God as Deus, which was spelled D-E-U-S, which is just one letter off from Zeus which Zeus was the God who would fire down judgment lightning bolts on everyone. He says that the church never really evolved past that concept of God. And if you think about it, every generation or iteration of church had different kind of sinner that was the sinner that they pinpointed as the scapegoat, right? Whether it's women or witchcraft, witches or heresy, you just, it's just a different sinner every generation, that we have to pinpoint as the scapegoat, because if we pinpoint that center as a scapegoat, our boundaries feel safe, and now we feel good about who's in and who's out. And that's very tribal thinking, very much this tribal mentality. Um, whereas if our gospel is bigger, I love what this Cuban theologian talked about the kingdom as a kingdom. A kingdom. If you think about kingdom, if you think about what is the kingdom, she says, this is Ada Maria Diaz. It's the La Familia, the liberating family of God working together for love and justice. This is, this is the picture of God's kingdom. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's brothers and sisters working together for love and justice. Not this boundary setting of who's in, who's out. Figuring out how do we make ourselves feel approved and better of ourselves. This is a difference where men and women are brought together beyond patriarchy. This is where economic differences can come together in the same community. This is a family whose principle is God as our, as, as our one we worship, and we are brothers and sisters who all share the same worth. And the church is able to bring together all these differences that usually separate us in humanity by identity politics or differences and beliefs and values. The church brings us all together where if one member suffers, we all suffer, where, where if we get involved in the hurt of others, we all hurt. Um, so, what, so, my, so I want to leave you with this. To what extent are we involved with people's lives? And I want to leave you with permission and this statement that you have the authority here and in the world to be a host who extends the radical welcome of Jesus. This isn't like a family where the elders are the patriarchy and matriarchy of the church and we decide what to do. No, you have the authority to be a host and to welcome with the radical love of Jesus. Um, We are all part of the hosting and the welcoming. And 
My other question for you is, in your own family, in your own nuclear family, are the lines you draw around that family too small? Like when you think about who is your family, the La Familia, your kingdom, is it too small? Is that line really too, is it, no, we got our family, this is our, this is, this is our, or is there, are the, is the lines get bigger of who gets welcomed into the home? Who gets sacrificed for? Who gets gifts? Who gets grace, unmerited favor? Who, where, how, how, where do the lines get drawn? Are those lines drawn too small? And I want to end, uh, Matthew, you can come up. As we come to the table, I want to end one more quote with Dorothy Day. It says this, We cannot love God unless we love each other. And to love, we must know each other. We know him in the breaking of bread, and we know, him, know each other in the breaking of bread. And we are not alone anymore. Heaven is a banquet, and life is a banquet too, even with a crust where there is companionship. We have all known the long loneliness, and we have learned that the only solution is love, and that love comes with community. Um, so I want to encourage you to, um, to be the body of Christ, to, to, to broaden your lines in, your, in the La Familia, in the kingdom. Um, I want to close with a story of this. Uh, there's this book that I read years ago. It's called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. The, the majesty of the book is it was actually written by a, a guy who had a stroke and he was paralyzed in his body. And the book begins with one eye sewn up in a hospital bed and the only movement he had left was in his one eye. And he writes an entire book by blinking his eye. So he had a friend with an alphabet chart and the blinks would communicate which letters. And he writes an entire book by blinking. That's why I read it. I'm like, if anything else like that's amazing. His heart was alive. He was filled with longings. And I wonder if that's like kind of how God feels about the church right now. Like we exist to bring the love and image of God to the world. And Jesus is trying to blink out a message. And he's like, my body isn't working at all. And I'm trying to like blink out a message because my body doesn't work. And I'm trying to get this communication out to the world of my love and display my love. But when people look at our church, that God's love is on display, the church at its best gives the world a tangible encounter of the love of God when the body's really working. But when we're not, when we're fighting each other, when we're at odds with each other, when we're setting boundaries, God's like, I just wish my body worked. I don't want to have to blink this message out. I don't want to have to try to get it out this way. So God, would you, let's pray. God, would you make us a community that's known not by the lines we draw, but by our extension of the family of God. God, may our body, may our gospel get bigger. May we stop seeing our relationship with you so individualistically, where it's all about me and you, me and you, where we, we see that we're, we're saved into relationship. We're saved into knowing others and loving others, that God shows up and others. As we shared the goodness of God and we started the service, almost everything about God's goodness was how God showed up with others. Amazing conversation, honest conversation. It, God, you show up in us and we show up to each other through us. So God, would you let us be
this body of Christ that works and lives and moves and is the preview community of heaven, every tribe, tongue, and nation. Let's stand. Church, you are beautiful. You are amazing. Take a glance as you worship and see the church. Just think through the beauty of God's body and how different we all are, yet how we are all united in Him as we sing.